Well, hello, my name is Sung Kim. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace. At Grace, we are one church meeting in three different locations. And so we just want to welcome you if this is your first time here at any of our locations. And uh, again, we are in this series called The Lies We Believe and the Truth That Sets Us Free. And here's the thing about lies as we begin. When you believe a lie to be true, you give it the same power over you as if it were true, even if it's not And so in this series, we're examining some of the lies that we have come to believe, and then we're looking to the Bible to to see God's truth so that God's truth can set us free from these lies. And today, we want to look at a lie that all of us, at one point or another, have either said out loud or thought in the deep recesses of our hearts, and it especially comes when trouble and trials come our way. And the lie that I've often thought or even said is this. Life shouldn't be this hard. In fact, life should be easy. And this lie has, a tr- has tremendous power over us, especially when we come to believe it, right? It shapes our attitude, our attitude about God and about ourselves, about other people. It governs our emotions. It determines our behavior. It affects our relationship, and it decides our future, And so I want us to take a look at how the enemy, Satan, whispers this lie to us by looking at the Old Testament story of Job. Now, typically, when we look at the story of Job, we look at it through the lens of suffering. But today, I want to take a a slightly different look at his story and look at his story through the lens of spiritual warfare. And so we're going to be breezing from chapter 1 all the way to the end in in different parts. So follow along as we read and and immerse ourselves into the story of Job. Job chapter 1 starts off like this. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. In other words, life is going pretty well for Job. And then the author of Job concludes uh, the section by saying, he was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Another translation says this, that Job was the greatest man among all the people in the East. I mean, when the Bible introduces you as the greatest person who's, who's ever lived in the Eastern Hemisphere, like life is looking pretty good for you. And so Job is happy and he's healthy and he's prosperous. And then there's this really disturbing conversation that happens between God and Satan in verse 6. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord And the accuser, because that's what he does, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. And that's how Peter describes our enemy as a prowling lion who, uh, uh, who who, who, who patrols the earth, looking for somebody to devour. And then this is the interaction between Satan and God. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. 
Satan replied to the Lord, yeah, but you know what? Job has a really good reason to fear you. You always put this wall of protection around him, his home and his property. You made everything he ever does, all of his endeavors, to prosper. So no wonder why he fears you. Satan continues, look how rich he is. But then, if you, God, if you reach out and take away everything Job has, he will surely turn around and curse you to your face. So uh, God answers. He says, all right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. And then in the following chapters, what you get is a picture of what the enemy does to get Job and you and I to simply give up, to turn our backs away from God when life gets really hard. And so we see a few things in the book of Job about how the enemy does this. One of the the ways that he does this, if you're taking notes, is he brings about difficult circumstances. Maybe a better word for this would be devastating circumstances because the loss that Job experiences in a very short amount of time is just tremendous. And so in verse 14, Job loses all of his oxens. I I don't know how you lose that many oxens or how how somebody goes about stealing that many, but a group of raiders come and take off with all of his oxens and they kill all of his farmhands. Verse 16, while that message is still being uh, conveyed to Job, another messenger arrives and says, Job, there's been a fire and it's killed all of your sheep. All, like 3,000 of them, or whatever it was, and all of your shepherds. And then a third messenger arrives and tells him that all of his camels have been stolen and all of his servants have been killed. So this is not a good day at the office for Job, right? I mean, and it's not like he has some kind of insurance plan. I mean, this is it. It's not like he's going to be able to rebuild. Like, he has lost everything here. And just when it seems like things can't get any worse, in verse 18, another messenger arrives with another message and says to him, Job, I I don't know how to tell you this, but all of your sons and daughters were eating and dining at your oldest son's house when a violent wind and storm came through and the entire house collapsed. And Job, there are no survivors. All your children are dead. Now, some of you hear that, and you understand this, at least a little bit, maybe not to the degree that Job's experienced, but, but to be honest, uh, it's kind of like falling, right? Like, you can only fall so fast, and at some point, it doesn't feel that much different. And so you've got hit w- with one thing after another after another, and you finally reach this point where you just want to shout out and exclaim, Why? Why is this happening to me? And you may even say this, life shouldn't be this hard. What is going on? And here's what I've experienced as a pastor, having front row seats to uh, see moments like this in so many people's lives. In that moment, when trouble comes, when difficulties come, people will either push God away or lean harder into him. Those are the only two options. The enemy is counting on you uh, that, that, counting on you to turn your back on God to say, you know what, I'm done. This is, this is all I can take. And I might even say some of you are here right now because you are going through some really challenging things. 
and you're desperate, and you're, you may be asking God that question now, like, why? Why is this happening to me? And there's a part of you that wants to just walk away, turn your back on God, and just say, I'm done. But you know what? That's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. And so Job has all of these things happen to him, uh, one after another. And at this point, the enemy is probably thinking, surely this is enough to get Job to walk away, to turn his back, and to call it quits on God. But we see in chapter 1, verse 20, it says this, Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Right, so he's not in denial, right? He's devastated. Then he shaved his head, which was a sign of mourning, and fell to the ground. Job fell to the ground, and he quit, and he gave up. He fell to the ground, and he turned away. No, it doesn't say any of that. It says that he shaved his head and fell to the ground. And if you would, at all of our locations in here with me, would you, would you complete the sentence? Job fell to the ground to worship. One devastating moment after another. His worst nightmare has come true. He falls to the ground and he worships God. He begins by quoting scripture. And again, would you help me out here at all of our locations? Here is a, the scripture that he repeats in the midst of all, his, all of his sufferings. And some of you may be familiar with this. Uh, again, but let's read all this uh, passage scripture out loud together. Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And at this point of the story, here's what I want to point out about your story and mine. Right? Your story does not have to be defined by what happens to you. It can be defined by how you respond to what happens to you. And we see this in Job. So Job, in this moment, leans hard into God, and he worships him. Job chapter 2, God allows the enemy to attack Job with, with physical suffering and sickness, and he's covered from head to toe with these painful sores all over his body. And in, that, in the midst of all these difficult circumstances, the enemy comes with a second strategy to bring Job down. He sends somebody into his life to tear him down. And so we could say it's not only difficult circumstances that, God, that, that Satan uses to, to uh, bring us down, but he also brings discouraging people. So maybe you're at this place where what you really need is somebody to come alongside you and encourage you, to strengthen you. But instead, somebody comes on the scene and just rips into you. And that's like the last thing you needed in the midst of all this. And so Job is sitting there in the dirt. And just picture this. His robe is torn. His head is shaved. He's holding this broken piece of pottery that he's using to scrape the sores that cover his body. When his wife comes along and says to him this in Job chapter 2, verse 9. She says, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? In other words, seriously, Job? After all that's happened to us, are you still trying to be faithful to God? After everything that we've lost? Seriously, Job? Why don't you just curse God and die? 
And so the enemy knows that if he can't sell you on a lie, he'll get somebody that you know and that you love, and they'll get that person to buy into the lie and have that person tell you that lie. Because when it's Satan telling you the lie, we put our guard up because we know the enemy is attacking us. But if you get somebody that you know and that you love to buy into the lie and that that person tells you the lie, all of a sudden that's harder to recognize. Now, I'm not saying that the person that, that's doing this intent, is intending to, to lie to you, right? But they've bought the lie. And, and now they're telling it to you. And so I was talking to somebody recently, and they said to me, so, uh, you know, there's a lie that, that, I, that is in my head, and it's so hard for me to get out, out of my head. And it's a li- I, I know it's a lie, but it's something. Like my dad told me this growing up. I had an, uh, a dad that was alcohol, addicted to alcohol. And the thing that he kept saying to me, was, son, you will never amount to anything. He said, son, I've been living my entire life to, to, to try to prove him wrong. And he, as we were talking, I, I told him this. You know, I said, look, your dad is not the enemy, but he is a victim of the enemy. Maybe his dad told him that lie, and now he's telling you that lie. And so sometimes the enemy gets other people, discouraging people to tell us lies. And that's one of his favorite strategies. It's not just difficult circumstances and discouraging people, but thirdly, and real quickly, sometimes it's daunting accusations. After Job's wife speaks uh, to, to Job, his friends come on the scene, and at first, they just, they just they want to console him and comfort him, and so they just hang out with him. They don't say anything for an entire week. They weep with him, they, they stay with him. But then after a week, they begin to say some things, and that's where things go downhill. They say some things that are are helpful. They say some things that are true. But they say a lot of things that aren't helpful, and they say a lot of things that aren't true. And soon, they say this to Job. They say, Job, what have you done? Like, you must have done something. This kind of tragedy doesn't just randomly come upon somebody. Right? God must be punishing you for something. What is it that you've done? Job, this must be your fault. And so, God, and so Satan, I keep saying God instead of Satan. Freudian slip there, right? Satan comes in and he wants to use past guilt and shame, false guilt, and, and accuse us. Now, by now, Job is ready to quit, right? At least that's how he feels like. And in chapter uh, 6, listen to what Job says. He says, I wish God would crush me. I wish he would just reach out his hand and kill me. Have you ever felt that way? And then he goes on. He says, I don't have the strength to endure. I have nothing to live for. Do I have the strength of a stone? Is my body made of bronze? No, I am utterly helpless without any chance of success. So Job feels like quitting, but he doesn't. He doesn't do it. He's honest about his trials. He's honest about his feelings. And for Job, all of these troubles comes down to one piercing question that he wants to know from God that I think we often ask when life is hard. Why? Why is this happening to me? God, just give me the reason why I'm suffering, and if you give me the reason, then I might be able to endure and stand up under all of the suffering. Well, we're going to jump to the end of Job. Job 38, God begins to answer Job's question, and he begins by saying this. He says, who is this that darkens my word, my counsel with words without uh, wisdom? In other words, God is saying, who is this knocking on my door that doesn't know what he's talking about? 
Job, is that you? Oh, oh yeah. He, and then God says, look, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Whenever God tells you to brace yourself, like it's going to be a little painful. And he says, look, you've been asking me a lot of questions. Oh, okay, look, really, I, I have some questions for you, Job. And then for the next four chapters, God goes on asking Job all of these questions. Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Well, let me think back to before the beginning of time. Uh, there was me, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and uh, yeah, yeah I, I didn't see you there, Job. Uh, have you ever commanded the morning dawn to, to rise? Do you know how many snowflakes are scheduled to fall on the ground? Can you hear the morning star sing and the angels shout for joy, Job? Have you ever measured the vast dimensions of the universe? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades and loosen the, the, the cords of Orion? And so God goes on and on. And so God begins to ask Job all of these questions. And on one hand, it's really indicting. On the other hand, it's really comforting. Because there is something comforting about a God that is that big that even if he chose to explain it to us, we would never understand. And so what Job has wanting all along is this. I just want an explanation, just a reason for why I'm going through all of this. And this is, the part that, this, is, this is the part that I really want to focus on. And this is really extremely important for us because what we see is when God shows up and he speaks to Job, God doesn't say a word about why Job is suffering. Instead, the author of the book tells us, deliberately tells us the reason why Job is suffering through this. But when God shows up and speaks to Job, God does not say a word about this. He is completely silent as to the reason why Job is suffering. Now, here's the thing. Satan wants suffering to come into Job's life. Why? Because Satan wants to expose Job as a fraud. So Satan says, look, Job is a phony. He looks like he's serving you but really he's not. He's really serving himself. He looks like he's doing good for others and for you, but he really he's in it for himself. So I dare you, God, to bring suffering into his life, and when you do, as sure as the dawn appears, Job will be exposed as a charlatan and a fraud. And here's the thing. What does God do? God only allows enough suffering into Job's life to accomplish the opposite of what Satan wanted. This is really important. God only allows enough suffering into Job's life to accomplish the opposite of what Satan really wanted. What do I mean by this? Job, he becomes one of the most famous uh, men and fi figures in the history of the Bible. Uh, literally, billions of people have been inspired and encouraged by his patience, by his courage, by his faith, and his, perse and his perseverance. So why doesn't God in this moment just say, you know, Job, I'm allowing this to happen because I am making your name great. You are going to become a great person and your name will live on forever. Like, why doesn't God say that? Because that's what he's doing. But God doesn't say that. In fact, he can't say that. Because if God tells Job that, Job will never become the great person that God intends him to. His name, whose name will live on forever and ever. Does that make sense? Are you following? 
Some head nods, no, you guys are glazed over. I've completely lost you, sung. Okay, one uh, illustration to help us, uh, uh, help us with this. Uh, I'm going to reference an old movie, which is totally going to date me. Um, but how, how many of you at all of our locations have ever seen the, uh, the wonderful film or, or play called Amadeus? Anybody? Let me see your raise of hands. Uh, a few of you. Uh, honestly, uh, I would have to say probably maybe in the top five, maybe in, definitely in the top ten uh, of my favorite films of all time. <laughs> Just an illustration from this movie, Amadeus, and if you haven't seen it, go home tonight and uh, get, uh, watch it on Amazon or whatever. Uh, it's an awesome movie. So there's a young man named Salieri uh, who at one point offers up this prayer to God, and he says, he says this, Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and let me be celebrated as well. And in return, God, I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life. And the young boy prays, amen. And as he begins this life, this new life after he makes this deal with God, he starts off serving God in every way that he knows possible. He keeps his hands off women. He works hard at his music. He helps the poor. He even helps budding musicians by giving them free lessons, and he goes to church all the time. For a while, it looks like God is holding up his end of the bargain. His career starts to take off, and everything is going well until one day, until one day, he arrives and all of a sudden, Salieri is in show. Who is he? Right, that's Salieri in the movie. Who is he that arrives and changes everything? Well, it's the young Amadeus Mozart. Well, Mozart comes to Vienna, and everything begins to change for Salieri because Mozart's brilliant genius starts to eclipse uh, all the, and highlights uh, Salieri's mediocrity as a musician. And soon this young prodigy is like the talk of the town. And what Salieri can't understand is how this young prodigy continues to curry God's favor, despite the fact that he is immature, he is uh, completely immoral, and he is completely irreligious. In fact, there's one point in the movie uh, when he's actually watching Amadeus Mozart cheat on his fiancée. And then Salieri says to himself, as he sees this, he says, this is incomprehensible. Here I am denying all of my natural lusts every single day so that I can deserve God's gift. And here is this young brat of a prodigy indulging in all of his lusts. And not, what he gets is not even a rebuke from God. What he gets is nothing but success. And it's at this point that Salieri starts to just brim and burn with anger at the injustice of how God is allowing life to unfold. Finally, he takes the crucifix off his wall and he throws it into the fire. And at one poignant part in the movie, he says this. He says, from now on, we are enemies, you and I. From now on, we are enemies. So what does that mean? Salieri would certainly say, and he does actually say this at the end of the movie, as he's confessing this as an old man to a priest, he says, I was a servant of God. I served my fellow man. I've served God. I've served the poor. And, and, and all of this. And you see, Salieri is exactly what Satan said Job was. 
Salieri was telling himself, oh, I'm, I'm serving God. But he wasn't. He was serving himself. God was a useful commodity to him to get the glory that he hungered for. As soon as God stopped doing what Salieri wanted, he turned and quickly became far more immoral than that young Mozart ever was. And so we see, even though Job has been struggling and even though he's yelling and, and just, just, this isn't right, God. Why am I going through this? Just give me the reason. How dare you, God, you bring this difficulty into my life? Do you know what Job never does? He never throws a crucifix in the fire. I mean, he, he didn't have a crucifix, but you know what I mean, right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't turn away from God. He never says, from now on, God, you and I are enemies. Do you know what makes a person like Salieri? A person who believes that you can earn a right relationship with God by doing good works. What makes a person like Salieri is a person who doesn't understand the gospel, who thinks, if I live a good life, then God owes me. A person becomes like Salieri who doesn't understand the grace of God. You see, Salieri didn't love God for himself alone. Salieri loved God as long as it was paying off for him. So if God shows up and says to Job, Job, look, you're going to suffer terribly. You know, in like 4,000 years from now, People all over the world will be talking about you and your name will live on forever. And imagine Job saying, oh, okay, well, if that's the case, then I can endure the suffering. Yeah, sure. Then what do we have? At the end of that, we have a bigger Salieri than we had before, a person who is in it just for himself. Now do you see why God doesn't and why he can't tell Job why he's suffering? The only way you and I Get to, get to the place where we ever learn to love God for himself and for him alone and not for our own sake is when suffering comes our way. And so Job feels like quitting and God doesn't give Job an answer to the question that he's asking. Right? Again, there's no, there's no response to that question. God gives Job something better. He gives Job himself. He gives him his presence. And so at the end of ch uh, in chapter 40, this is what Job, he says this. He says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. Right? Like I, I just stand speechless. A couple chapters later, and he says this. Job says this. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He sees God in a way that he's never seen before. And so in the beginning of the book, life is good and everything is going well for him and Job knows God and then life falls apart and it's only then that Job sees God in a way he's never done before. And some of you understand this because you have gone through things that you don't wish upon your enemy. You have gone through things that you wish you had never gone through but in your darkest hour, you know, it was God who met you there. And now you see God in ways that you have never done before. And it turns out that when we, need, uh, when we need God most desperately is when we see him most clearly. I can tell you that this is true not only in my life, but in so many other people's. You know, in my travels, I've been to, in starving villages of Africa. I've been in large mansions of Malibu. I can tell you where I've seen God. 
I've seen God in refugee camps. I've seen God in prison cells and in homeless shelters. I've seen God in hospital waiting rooms, and I've seen God in, in graveside services. I'll say this. If you want to see God, really see him, then go find somebody whose world has fallen apart and just pay attention for a few minutes, and I can guarantee you God will show up. And here's the hope that we go in. Right, there's a passage in the middle of the book of Job, and it's smack dab in the middle of all of his pain and all of his suffering, probably the point where the enemy is saying, okay, I, I think Job is just at the tipping point. He's just about to turn, and he's going to walk away, and he's going to give up and turn his back on God. And it's at that point that Job starts telling himself this truth. He says in Job chapter 19, 25 and 26, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. You see, Job draws a line here. He says, my life has fallen apart. Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. And he probably sees no hope for redemption on this side of eternity. But he says here, right, that's okay. Because my hope isn't in this world. In the end, when it's all said and done, in the end... I know that he will renew and restore all things. And so this is the hope of the gospel for us. Maybe some of you are going through uh, unemployment. But, but I know that my Redeemer lives. Some of you are addicted to sins and struggles and you think I'm never going to change. But I know my Redeemer lives. Some of you have been through a divorce or your marriage is on the rocks. But I know my Redeemer lives. Some of you have experienced tremendous loss, but here's the truth of the gospel, but I know my Redeemer lives. Some of you have been diagnosed, or you're a family of friends who've been diagnosed with the disease, but I know that my Redeemer lives. This is the hope. This is the truth, right? Life is difficult. In this world, you will have trouble, but I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand on the earth And after my skin has been destroyed, and yet in my flesh, I will see God. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and let's pray. And so, God, this is a pretty intense story of Job, one that makes us recognize that your ways are higher than ours, that your thoughts are beyond our comprehension. God, today we don't want to forget your great faithfulness. That you will finish in us. You will bring to completion all that you've started. And when life gets hard, when life is difficult, God, we want to hold on to you because you're our only hope and our only foundation. So God, through all the trials and tribulations that we're going through, or even if we're not, we know one day we will go through, God, we keep our eyes on you. Instead of the winds and the waves, instead of the storm around us, God, you are our only hope and foundation in this world. God, we know that one day you will stand on the earth and that we will rise in victory and that we will say that we can see you face to face. God, we love you. Thank you for your presence. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.